0: Good evening, everybody. Um, I'd like to uh, say just what an honor it is to be here. And uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to thank President Haas, my old friend, uh, for, for inviting me. I'd like to uh, also thank and acknowledge uh, Glees Whitney, the director of the Holstein Center. And I'd like to thank also um, Marty and Sue Allen for what you've done with this fantastic museum, and everyone associated with the library and the, and the museum. It's, it's a very moving place, and this is an honor to be able to speak in a venue like this. And, and uh, I'd also like to thank um, the people of Grand Rapids for inviting me to be here, and I really appreciate the, the, the turnout in such great weather, you know. <laughs> so... What I'd like to do this evening is, is uh, talk to you about one of my favorite subjects, and this was my very first book, Lincoln on Leadership, was it was rejected 17 times by 17 different publishers <laughs> over the course of eight years, and to be able to come to a place like this, or to be able to come anywhere, actually, <laughs> to actually sign books that I thought never would get published is, is really uh, very rewarding uh, for me. And I, I thought... Um, I'd start a little bit about my journey, and then I want to talk to you a little bit about what I learned about Abraham Lincoln and some of his leadership skills that I think helped him uh, preserve the Union, and how some of these leadership traits and skills can be used t- today. Uh, and I want to really focus on Lincoln as as a leader himself, and you can kind of draw your own conclusions, I think. But it, it kind of started for me when I was a kid, um, I was about 10 years old. and I came home complaining to my mother that I'd been selected to memorize the Gettysburg Address in school, and I thought, oh, yeah, well, you know, my, and my mom said, no, that's an honor, that's, that's an honor. And We were living in Arlington, Virginia at the time, and she grabbed me and said, we're going down to Lincoln Memorial right now. And so we did, and I remember as a kid standing there looking up at the Lincoln Memorial and reading, uh, in this temple is in the hearts of the people for whom he saved the Union, the memory of Abraham Lincoln is enshrined forever. And I remember thinking to myself, boy, this guy must have really done something. You know? <laughs> Little did I know. Um, and so basically, I, when I eventually started doing my research on Lincoln, it was out of necessity because I was promoted into management. I didn't know how to manage and lead. And I thought, well, maybe I could learn something from, from Abraham Lincoln. And so um, the first thing that You really have to, I think, to understand Lincoln is to understand the time he lived in and the crisis that he was involved in. And the Civil War was certainly a time of great transition, and something was definitely on the way out. Something was changing. And Lincoln, in the the election of 1860, won the... um, the popular vote by only 39.8%. That's all he received. Yet he won majority of the Electoral College. And the reason he won, basically, is because the Democratic Party was hopelessly split into two factions, a Northern and a Southern party. And then there was another party called the Constitutional Union Party. And Lincoln's advisors told him to stay in Springfield, don't campaign, don't give any speeches, don't show your face, and you will be the next president of the United <laughs> States. And that's what he did. All right, so he wins the, the election of President of the United States. And back then, he wins on November the 6th and on March the 4th, which is when he took office, that was a four-month transition period. And I think we've just gone through a, a shorter transition period. But the, the Confederacy did not even give Lincoln the chance to become president. They, they basically seceded. By the time Lincoln actually took the oath of office, Seven states had already seceded from the Union to form the Confederate States of America. More states would later join, but uh, they had created their own constitution. Uh, they'd formed their own Congress. They'd sworn in Jefferson Davis as, as president of the Confederacy, and with them, they took they control of almost all of the federal forts and arsenals in the South. They took control of the Mississippi River, which was lifeblood of the nation's commerce and trade. Um, they, they, um, and, and Lincoln's cabinet, you know, the presidential cabinet had disintegrated and so had Congress. And there were only 16,000 men in the federal army at that time. And many of them were southern sympathizers. So you might ask, well, what did the, uh, the, the current president of the United States do during this time? Well, he didn't do anything. He didn't do anything to stop it. And when James Buchanan left Washington, he is reported to have said, I am the last president of the United States. People believed that there were two countries now, and that was it, it was over. And into this situation walks this man, who had no formal education to speak of, one year total schooling by his own admission. Uh, He was a one-term U.S. congressman in the 1840s, had no military experience to speak of. He was an elected captain in the Black Hawk, in the the Illinois militia for the Black Hawk War, and he said the only battles he ever had were with mosquitoes. And he was known, he was a Washington outsider, known as a country hick lawyer from the West. And he had never before held an executive leadership position of any kind. He hadn't even been president of his Rotary Club. One of my students looked at this picture and said, you know, he kind of looks like that guy Kramer on Seinfeld, too. What would you do if you were in a situation like that? And I asked this question because I, history is interesting, isn't it? But when you can bring history alive, realize this was a very real situation. And I asked myself, my God, what did he do? I mean, how? We all know that he preserved the Union in about four years, basically one term. But how did he do it? Let's look at some of the things he did. He started out by taking a stance. In his first inaugural, and by the way, there's the Bible that Barack Obama swore on uh, in his inauguration. Lincoln basically laid out his reason for uh, wanting to hold the Union together. And then toward the end of the address, he put the onus on the Confederates, And he said, in your hands, my fellow, my dissatisfied fellow countrymen, and not in mine, is the momentous issue of civil war. And then he made an eloquent plea to, for them to think about what they were doing because they'd been, to, you know, they'd been together in one country so long. And he said, we are not enemies but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passions may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. And the mystic cords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the union when again touched as surely they will be by the better angels of our nature. Very, very eloquent, isn't it? Well, Lincoln basically took a firm stance. And he said, I will not recognize the Confederacy. We cannot allow the democratic experiment to fold, because if, if we allow the ma- minority to rise up and overthrow the majority whenever they want, then democracy is finished. So his plea in his inaugural didn't do much good, and we all know that on April the 12th the Confederates fired on Fort Sumter and the next day. Um, the Union troops surrendered and the Confederate flag was raised at Fort Sumter and the Civil War was on. Now, what what would you do if you were president in a situation like this? Well, one of the first things that that he did, which I think is remarkable, is that he started putting people in his cabinet uh, that were uh, people who had run against him, leading contenders for the Republican nomination of 1860. Uh, and he put in, um, well, it's, uh, Secretary Seward in the, in the lower right here, William Seward was the Secretary of S- State. Well, he ran uh, from uh, New York, and he was the guy that everybody thought was going to be president at that convention. He was everybody, you know, Lincoln was nobody's first choice, but he was everybody's second choice, and when Seward couldn't get a majority, everybody kind of started turning different, and they turned to Lincoln. And now, does that sound familiar, the guy that everybody thought was going to be president, and somebody from Illinois comes out of nowhere to win the election? <laughs> Um, and then he put uh, uh, Salmon Portland Chase. He made him a secretary of the treasury. And Simon Cameron, he made him the secretary of war. And these were all people who were running against Lincoln for the presidency and for the Republican nomination. And when John Hay, Lincoln's um, assistant, uh, said, you know, why are you doing this? He said, all of these people, they, they thought they should be president. They think they're smarter than you are and they are going to try to usurp your authority. And you know what Lincoln said to John Hay? He said, well, if you can find anyone else who thinks he's smarter than I am, let me know, and I'll put them all in my cabinet where I can keep an eye on them. (laughs) It's a remarkable thing to think about, but when you really boil it down, Lincoln was faced with an almost insurmountable task, and he just was not going to put mediocre people in positions of authority. And I think this also says something about his, secure, his security. I mean, you know, I've been in corporate America and in local government for many, you know, on and off for years. And it's amazing how many leaders will surround themselves with yes people who don't want to hear uh, somebody say something negative. Lincoln wasn't that way. He, he really, in fact, wanted to hear what people said. And, and uh, i tell you a little bit more about how he worked with with people. that, In his cabinet, they found Lincoln to be amazingly decisive, very strong decisively. And I don't mean a a guy issuing orders all the time, but a guy willing to make decisions and listen to everybody else. And I heard a story uh, today about Gerald Ford was the same way. He would listen to everybody and then he would would say, well, okay, great, I've heard you all. This is what we're going to do now. That's kind of the way Lincoln was. Now, I cannot tell you any stories about what's going to happen with Barack Obama and his new Secretary of State. But I think it might be interesting. I can tell you some stories about what happened with Lincoln and Seward. And um, now Seward was the man, and he really thought he should be president. I mean, he, you know, he was going to be president. And that was it. So when he becomes Secretary of State, he sends an emissary down to South Carolina to negotiate a peace treaty with the South, so that the two, the Confederacy and the Union, could coexist. And he didn't tell Lincoln about it. <laughs> And Lincoln um, basically found out about it, and he called, he called Seward into his office at the White House and shut the door, and it was just the two of them. And he said, look, he said, you can't do this. We're going to preserve the union. And, and then he, he really chewed him out. He said, you will not act on my authority again without consulting me. Don't ever do that again. And so he, th- that was the end of it, and I thought that was interesting. He didn't chew him out in front of other people, but he made his point and then Seward, you know, Seward's feeling kind of bad, and then he decides, well, he, how am I going to work? And then, how am I going to get done what I want to get done? And he basically begins to watch Lincoln, and he sees that Lincoln likes to work uh, with a team and build consensus. And, and you know, so he, he gets this other idea, and then he goes, and he goes around to all of the other cabinet secretaries, and he builds support from the other cabinet secretaries for this new idea that he's going to introduce at a cabinet meeting. And the only person that didn't know what was coming was the president. So he's assured that they're all going to support him, and he goes in there, and, and uh, he, he says, this is my idea, and Lincoln listens. He says, all right, what's the idea? He says, well, Mr. President, I think we should start a war with Great Britain, and that way we will unite the North and the South against a common enemy. And um, Lincoln, the story goes, he kind of leans back, thinks about it a minute, looks at Seward and says, one war at a time, Mr. Secretary? And what do you think all of the other secretaries in the room said? They didn't say anything. They basically left Seward out there to, to kind of dangle, you know. And, um, okay, so now you have uh, your, your right-hand man, you, you know. Put yourself in the position of these two people. Seward is the secretary of state, and you're Seward, and now you've been chewed out in private by the president and embarrassed by the president in front of your colleagues. What are you going to do? You know, you well. He he submitted his resignation, and now with, what are you going to do if you're Lincoln? Lincoln, uh, basically, you, you got your right hand man who is going around behind your back trying to usurp your authority, and then he's also working behind your, his back with the other members of your team. What are most corporate executives going to do with a guy like Seward? They're going to they're going to fire him, right? Now, this is one of the things that I find set Lincoln apart from a lot of other leaders and that is he he did not accept Seward's resignation and he did not fire Seward. He chose instead, bless you, he chose instead to build a relationship with William Seward and he over the next six months he would take these long carriage rides with Seward, invite him to go with him out to talk to the troops out in uh, uh, in Virginia when they were coming down for their training. And he would go to lunch with them and go to dinner and they would get to know each other. And he built a relationship with Seward. And he, he told John Hayes, says, you know, if I can just get, get Seward to come over to our side, I'll mm-hmm. never have to worry about the State Department again. And. Six months later, Seward would write to his wife, executive force and vigor are rare qualities. The president is the best of us. And I often found this to be very interesting. What did he say? He said, the president is the best of us. It wasn't about you or me, it was about the country. It was about us doing the best job for the country. And Seward later became Lincoln's strongest supporter and best friend for the rest of the presidency. So I ask you the question, was it worth it to take the time to build that relationship for six months? And how many leaders would have really done that So he, we know he was interested in building alliances. He, he, he built, he, he was a major part of his, his leadership style. And today, people write about alliance building, you know, and why you should do it. And this is from a recent couple of books that I pulled out that people are teaching about leadership now. And, you know, the banding together of individuals creates energy and enthusiasm. And you can get more work done and you can leverage resources and all of that. Well, Lincoln was doing this in the Civil War, you know. All you have to do is study him. And in his famous uh, 1858 House Divided speech when he was running for the Senate, um, he started out with a a quote from the scripture, a house divided against itself cannot stand. But then he, he pointed out something that I found was really remarkable about his leadership style. He said, Our cause must be entrusted to and conducted by its own undoubted friends whose hands are free, whose hearts are in the work, who do care for the result. So he wanted people on his team who cared. And how do you ever really know if somebody cares? Now, I've been there, you know, and you you point people and you think that they care, but how do you ever really know? Well, you have to build relationships with them. You have to be sure. And how do you build relationships with people? You don't do it by staying in your office all the time. And one of the things I found about Lincoln that he was just always out of the White House. I had real trouble tracking him down. I had to go to this publication, Lincoln Day by Day, just to find out where he was. And, and he was always going out in the field talking to people and convening cabinet meetings at odd places and things like that. And um, he's, his philosophy was, it's important that the people know I come among them without fear. Because he was the president, he did not want people to fear that, which I think is very interesting. And he even fired one general because he stayed in his office all the time. That was General John Fremont, who was the, was the head of the uh, Department of the West. In Missouri, and he was staying in his office, and he was issuing all of these crazy orders, and people said, "Well, this is ridiculous," and so they wouldn't follow his orders, and they started laughing at him and they mocked him, and then they got mad, and who did they get mad at? They got mad at Lincoln for leaving Fremont in the in the position in the first place. Finally, Lincoln removed him from office, and he wrote to his he wrote a letter to David Hunter, who was uh, Fremont's replacement, and he said this of. Uh, Fremont, He said, his cardinal mistake is that he isolates himself and allows nobody to see him, and by which he does not know what is going on in the very matter he's dealing with. What a remarkable statement. To even That's his philosophy. But not only that, but he wrote it to Hunter because he didn't want Hunter to make the same mistake. You know, I used to think about Lincoln a lot, and I, you know, I said, you know, Whenever you see pictures of Lincoln, he never has a briefcase. So he's always traveling and he where does he keep his papers and stuff, And you know, so the story comes goes that, you know, that they wrote the story that his top hat was his portable desk. And he would take areas at Antietam with McClellan, he'd take his hat off, you know, and he'd pull letters and I don't know, you know, pens and pencils and money and I don't know, rabbit, you know, out of his hat. And and then I I saw this hat on the lower right. This is one of the hats probably the main hat that Lincoln wore during the Civil War. I saw this in California at a museum. And uh, do you see the two um, white spots right there? That's where Lincoln put his fingers when he was taking his hat off and putting it on. And he wore it down to the felt. And that was very moving to me because that showed how often he was traveling with that same hat. You know, one of the things that... um, uh, historians, one of the reasons that they rank Lincoln the greatest is because uh, uh, the greatest president is because of all the innovations. Uh, here's a picture of a hot air balloon. You know, in the Civil War was the first time hot air balloons were used to to kind of get a lay of the land. Uh, it's kind of a 1860s U2 plane, I guess. You know, but Lincoln uh, was very interested in technology. He's the only president to have ever held a patent. And this is it. You you know, it was for a method of making grounded boats more buoyant. It it never sold anything, and it never made him any money. And you can go to the patent office today and see it. But I always thought, well, this is how his mind worked. You know, he was interested in in this type of stuff. And he, he did do new things. The Emancipation Proclamation can be viewed as very innovative. In fact, Lincoln was worried about the Emancipation Proclamation because he only freed the slaves in the states that were in rebellion and only the ones that hadn't surrendered yet. So he freed 3 million slaves, but there were another million slaves in the border states that he didn't free. And the reason he didn't, politically partly, because he didn't want to alienate the border states, but also he, didn't, he wasn't sure he had the constitutional authority to do that. Um, so the Emancipation Proclamation was a huge thing. And when he signed it, he said, if I'm remembered for anything, it will be remembered for this. It will be this I'll be remembered for. And then when you start looking at what Lincoln, the things Lincoln did... Uh, He was the first president to enact the draft as a reason for, you know, means of raising an army to fight a war. He was the first president uh, to institute an income tax. Now, these are really popular things to do, aren't they? (laughs) But he did it. He was the first president to spend money without the approval of Congress. And um, he he was big on communication, the first to establish regular nationwide mail delivery, the first to receive a telegraph message when the telegraph lines were completed between the Atlantic and the Pacific. And he was always walking over to the patent office to see what are the new inventions. And, you know, he. He would, he would find the new inventions, and in you've probably heard the stories about how Lincoln would bring the inventor of the repeating rifle to the White House, and Lincoln would actually shoot the rifle to see if it worked, and try to get it in the hands of, of his soldiers. And uh, he screened bullet, new types of bombs and flamethrowers and pontoon bridges, all kinds of stuff. And it was all about getting the latest in technology into the hands of his soldiers so they could have an edge. and. His philosophy on this was a letter that he, he wrote. It was contained in a letter to, uh, to Congress when he said basically this. He said, still, he said, the question recurs, can we do better? The dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. The occasion is piled high with difficulty, and we must rise with the occasion. As our case is new, so we must think anew and act anew. We must disenthrall ourselves, and then we shall nobly save our country. Do you think that that can apply to today? It can apply to any transitional time in history and any time you're in a crisis. And basically what he was saying was that the solutions of the past will not work for the problems of the present. We've got to be innovative and creative. Lincoln was also someone who did not like to issue orders. Uh, In fact, there are very few uh, presidential orders that you can find or instances of him telling somebody what to do. Most of the time, he was trying to persuade. Most of the time, he was trying to inspire. And his sentiment, basically, he said, with public sentiment, nothing can fail. Without it, nothing can succeed. So he who molds public sentiment goes deeper than he who enacts statutes or pronounces Decisions, and how did he inspire and persuade people? He went out to see them, and he would he would visit the troops, and and when he had an opportunity, he would stand on a split split rail fence, and he would talk to the soldiers about what they were fighting for. And he would say things like, "This is a people's contest. It's 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 a it's basically you're fighting for that form and substance of government whose leading object is to elevate." the condition of men, to clear the paths of laudable pursuit for all, to afford all an unfettered start and a fair chance in the race of life. Very moving and reminding people what, why the nation was founded in the first place. And this bond he built with the soldiers was so important. He understood the importance of human nature and why people needed to hear that. Um, and all of the great leaders that I've studied thought deeply about human nature. And Lincoln once said, "Human nature will not change in any future great trial compared with the men of this. We shall have as weak and as strong, as silly and as wise, and as bad and as good." Now, how profound is that compared to thinking about what we we're enduring today in the United States and around the world? But why is it important? Why is it important to understand human nature? Well, Grace Admiral Grace Hopper, who was the first female Navy admiral. In the 50s, she used to rail against the, quote, business management things that we're, people were talking about. She said, you know, it's not business management. It's leadership. He said, there's a difference. He said, you manage things, but you lead people. When it comes to people, that's leadership. And so, you know, leaders understand that, and they, they use an understanding of human nature to understand the motives and the reactions of the people in their organization and to improve themselves to, to be able to effectively... Uh, interface with others, and Lincoln understood this, you know, nor, you know just uh, almost intuitively. The other thing Lincoln was incredibly good at was communication, and not only was he good at it, but he practiced it, and he realized the importance of communication in leadership. And how, how good did he become? Well, we all know how good a public speaker he was. He was always out in the field mingling with people in human contact, his conversational ability, like with people with Seward, for example. And think about the written documents that he has written that really were speeches but have become today recognized as great American literature. He was a great writer. He really was. Um, and he was also an incredible storyteller, and I wanted to take this opportunity to tell a couple of stories. It, he didn't tell stories as jokes. He did when he was younger, but not when he was president. And uh, here's a couple. Uh, in the early part of the war, Secretary of War Stanton came in and, and took all of the telegrams uh, for one day because uh, they wanted to see if they had a lot of problems with spies and you know sympathizers and so on. And, and Stanton brought all of these telegrams into the, the conference room at, at the executive mansion, and all kinds of other evidence they had pulled together from people who they thought were loyal unionists and, and it was indicating that, that, that boy they're just the spies all over the place, you know and, and Lincoln looked at all this and listened to what Stanton had to say and listened to the presentation, and he was quiet for a moment, then, and then he said, "You know you see, you know, this reminds me of this, it reminds me of this, this, uh, this old farmer who lived out in Illinois, and he had a he had a great big, tall oak tree that stood over his farmhouse, and it was huge, it was beautiful, and it provided shade, and it was, a, it was the grand old sentinel of his farm, and he loved it. Well, one day he saw a squirrel run up the tree and disappear into a hole and not come out, and he went out to inspect it, and he found that this tree was hollow from top to bottom. There was only a small rim of wood. Around the edge of this tree, and then he really had a problem. He said, "Oh my God!" He said, "What's going? If I, I have to cut this down, but if I cut it down, it's so big, it'll destroy my house." He said, "But I can't leave it up because in a storm, a storm might come down and do even worse damage. What am I going to do?" And he looked at Stanton and he said, "I wish I'd never seen that squirrel." Is what the farmer said. <laughs> and he walked out of the room, and Stanton saying, "What? What?" <laughs> well, you know what Lincoln did. He suspended the writ of habeas corpus, and he took action on it. He decided he had to take some action you know, so that they could arrest some of these people. And, uh, this, uh, and then he went back and he asked Congress to approve it because he knew it was unconstitutional. He knew he was breaking the law. And he asked Congress to approve it, and they approved it kind of retroactively. Now, for those of you that might have seen Dick Cheney on Face the Nation in his last week in office, uh, Bob Schieffer asked Dick Cheney about the wiretapping that was going on. And how come that they did all these wiretaps and they didn't go through Congress? Because they could have asked Congress and they would have given it to you. He said, well, we felt that, that there was a need. And and, he, and then he cited Lincoln suspending the writ of habeas corpus. And Schieffer said, well, was it illegal for Lincoln to do it? And Cheney said, well, he wasn't impeached. <laughs> so uh, I just found that to be just a, a very interesting thing. But you know that you can take that for what it is. but here's another story. Um, Lincoln had an idea to create the first paper money, and he wanted to print paper money as a way of, of drawing interest to fund the war effort. And he had to go through Secretary of uh, the Treasury, um, Salmon Portland Chase, who really spent four years trying to get the Republican nomination of 1864. They really had a very poor relationship. And so he brings Chase into his office, and he sits down with him. He tells him his idea, and Chase, Chase says, no, no, that's unconstitutional. We can't do that. I won't even hear of it. I would never print paper money. Now, Lincoln could have chose to argue with him, but he didn't. He sat back, and he told him a story. He said, you know, this reminds me of a, of an old sea captain uh, who ran his, his boat on a reef. And he, of course, Chase's eyes rolled. Here's another Lincoln story, and he said he ran his boat on a reef and he knocked a hole in the bow of the ship and water started pouring in and and it's you know it, it looked like the sh- the boat the ship was going to sink and so he sent all of his men the captain did to to bail the water out and he the captain went to pray before a statue of the Virgin Mary at, at the bow of the boat. Well, all of the water kept coming in It looked like the ship was going to go down and. Um, at last, in a fit of rage, the captain grabbed the statue of the Virgin Mary and threw it overboard. And all of a sudden, the leak stopped. And they, they bailed the water out, and they made, made it safely to... Play. And when docked for repairs, they found the statue of the Virgin Mary stuck in the hole. Oh. Oh. <laughs> and so Lincoln tells Chase the story and then looks at him. And Chase says, you know, I don't understand the point of your story, Mr. President. And he said, well, He said, Chase, he said, I don't... Um, I don't intend to throw the Virgin Mary overboard, and by that I mean the Constitution, but I'll jam it in the hole if I can. (laughs) He said, these rebels down south are violating the Constitution to destroy the Union, and I will violate the Constitution, if necessary, to save the Union. And I suspect that our Constitution is going to be in for a rough go of it before we end this struggle. And Chase thought a minute and he said, okay, you're right, I, I get it. And And so that's how the first paper money got printed. And I always thought this was interesting that Lincoln didn't argue with him that much. What he did was he told him a story. That's all he did. He just told him a story. He could have ordered him to do it, but he didn't want to order him to do it because he might not never get done. Um, Okay, so the rest of the story. Here's the first paper bill, dollar bill that was printed. And that's not George Washington. That's Solomon Portland Chase. (laughs) And I always thought that Lincoln put his arm around Chase and as they're walking out the door and said, look, if you do this for me, you can put your own picture on the (laughs) bill. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's just what occurred to me. The the, the other thing that I, I found was amazing was that, that Lincoln um Lincoln really um was searching for a general for almost the first three years of the war. And and I had this was the last chapter I wrote in the book, because I just couldn't figure out, every time I read a story, there was a new general in charge. And I said, well, what's going on? So I spent quite a bit of time putting this together. And I, I found out that General Winfield Scott, who was you know 70 some odd years old, and uh, talked to Lincoln. And, and they both agreed that he shouldn't be the guy that leads this. And so Lincoln asked Winfield Scott, well, who would you recommend to take over? And he said, Robert E. Lee. And Robert E. Lee, of course, we all know that he went down to, he said, I can't fight against my home state. Virginia, he became the, the head of uh, of the uh, of the Confederate Army, and who you know who won most of the battles during the Civil War. The first couple of years, it was it was the Confederacy. Well, so Lincoln Lincoln is going on this search for a general. Who is it going to be? And I I, ha- I took I took months off to try to research this. This is before computers and the internet, you know. So I was at the library trying to figure all this stuff out, and I did this chart. And those bars represent the times that these generals were put together. I want to tell you a couple of stories. One is that he he gave George McClellan a chance. And George McClellan was in his early 30s. He was known as the young Napoleon. Uh, His position was, I can do it all. Whatever you want me to do, I can do it. And um, Lincoln said, okay, we'll give you a chance. So he put him in charge of the military. And uh, and, uh, McClellan started building up. Troops. He kept building up troops, building up troops, until he got eventually got to 500,000 troops, and um, and that was a good thing. But he wouldn't use those troops, and Lincoln wanted him to, to use the troops, you know, and and uh, so he would go over to, to McClellan and talk to him, and and one night on November the 13th, 1861, he he before that he would go to McClellan a lot to try to encourage McClellan. He went over there to talk to McClellan one evening with Secretary Seward, who was now his friend, and um, John Hay, his personal assistant. And the story goes that uh, McClellan wasn't there, and the housekeeper said he'll be back in a little while. He went to a wedding. So would you like to wait in the parlor? So the president, Secretary of State, and John Hay sit in the parlor, and less than an hour later, uh, McClellan comes back, and the housekeeper says, who's in the, the living room? And McClellan stomps upstairs and goes to bed. And so Hay and Seward are outraged, and they leave, and they walk back to the White House. And Lincoln says, look, it's best at times like this not to be talking about etiquette and personal dignity. He says, let's let it go. Let me worry about it. But after that, it it was very rarely that Lincoln ever went to McClellan again. And their, their relationship started to deteriorate seriously. McClellan called Lincoln a rare bird, and, and Lincoln would view the Army of the Potomac and say, this isn't the Army of the Potomac, this is McClellan's bodyguard. <laughs> Another general that, uh, that he appointed eventually was, was uh, Joe Hooker. And Joe Hooker was complaining about his, his boss, at the time, was Ambrose Burnside. And he actually wrote and said publicly that what the, what, the comp, what the country needed was a dictator, and they should replace Lincoln with a dictator. And So Lincoln heard about this. He said, well, I'm going to give Hooker a chance and see what he does. And so he, he, uh, he goes to see Hooker in the field when he appoints him, and he says to him, he, and this is the famous Hooker letter, and in this letter he, he says, I've heard that you said this, but it's in spite of this that I'm going to give you this, uh, this position. Um, he says, we're going to support you. Whatever you want, you let us know, but I, you, you must act. And it was a very nice, long letter. And when he, when he went out to see him, he basically talked to him about the substance of this letter. And then he reached in his hat, and he pulled this letter out, and he handed it to him. And he said, here is the substance of what we've just discussed. Now, isn't that interesting? Have you ever been in a corporate America where you had somebody that said they were going to do something, and then six months later they say, well, I don't remember that? Well, Lincoln anticipated that, and he had it in writing which I found amazing. Well, eventually, Hooker decides, and and Lincoln both decide, that Hooker's not the guy for the job. Hooker agreed to it. And just before Gettysburg, General Henry Halleck uh, uh, recommends Lincoln that they appoint um, George Gordon Meade. And Halleck says to Lincoln, he's from Pennsylvania, which is where this battle is going to be fought. And Lincoln says, well, Meade will fight well on his own dunghill. (laughs) And... So they appointed Meade, and he did perform well, you know. But the, the, after the, the battle was over, though, when Lee was trying to retreat back across the, the, the Rappahannock, he, 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 uh, he would go for a, a day, and Meade would chase him and stop. When, when, uh, when, when Lee would camp, Meade would camp. And they did this for a couple of days, and when Lee finally reached the river, it was swollen, and they couldn't get across. And so Lincoln was sending telegrams, attack, he can end the war right now, He's take attack, attack, and he wouldn't attack, even though some of his generals wanted him to, and basically um, the waters receded and Lee made it to safety. Lincoln summoned Meade a couple of weeks later, and he said, you know, the only thing I think of, well, your, your behavior was an old woman trying to shoo her geese across a creek. <laughs> Well, he finally found the general uh, that that he appointed was Sam Grant. And he had heard, you know, Grant was winning winning battles out on the Western Theater. And there was a a, kind of a a smear campaign mounted against him. And a group of temperance workers came into Lincoln and said, you know, we think you should fire Grant because he was drunk on whiskey at Shiloh. And Lincoln was reported to have said, well, maybe we should send a bottle of that whiskey to all of our (laughs) (laughs) generals. And then he, you know, he. They asked him why, why did he appoint Grant, and, 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 uh, and Lincoln wrote in this letter, he said, Grant habitually wears an expression as if he had determined to drive his head through a brick wall and was about to do it. <laughs> and here's Grant at Cold Harbor, and most of the pictures you see of Grant during the Civil War are in the field, not in a studio. And Lincoln, I mean Grant actually told Lincoln, I don't want an office in Washington, I want to ride with the Army of the Potomac. Now that was music to, the, to his ears. <laughs> okay, so what Lincoln was doing on this three-year quest was he was giving all of these generals, you see those black bars there? He was giving them all three to six months to perform. And when they didn't perform, he would either slide them aside or he would split their command or he'd outright fire them until he finally found Grant. And if you look in, on March the tenth, 1864, everything stays the same. You go back to that chart. Halleck was made the chief of staff, Grant was put in charge of all the military. And that's a system that loosely still holds today for the American uh, military. Lincoln created that system by himself, basically. And he just basically said, I can't spare this man. He's good. We're going to keep him. And Grant immediately picks generals in his own image, uh, and he, he takes Phil Sheridan and uh, William Tecumseh Sherman. And in the campaigns of 1864, Sheridan is in, goes into the Shenandoah Valley. We all know where Sherman went. And Grant himself went into the Wilderness Campaign, and remember, this was also 1864. That's an election year, and of course, um, that basically ended the war. And so it took it took Lincoln three years to find Grant. And what if he had settled for McClellan? Would, would he have ever won the war? This is this is one of the most important aspects of why I think Lincoln was able to win the Civil War in only four years and pull the Union back together. And in the election of 1864, he ran against George McClellan, who was now a civilian. And he, McClellan had got the Democratic nomination, but oddly, Lincoln got the Republican nomination, but he didn't. They ran on the Union ticket. He chose Andrew Johnson as his running mate, who was a senator from Tennessee, and he was a Democrat. And they they ran on the Union ticket. He was trying to pull the Union back together. And of course, this time, he won handily. Of course, the southern states weren't on the ballot, of course. But (laughs) McClellan didn't win very much at all. And this is important, because Lincoln made sure that the soldiers got to vote. And you would think the soldiers would vote for a, a general, right? They didn't. They voted for Lincoln, because Lincoln had built that relationship with them over the course of the last four years. He got over 80% of the soldiers' vote. In his second inaugural, he he talked about high hopes for the future, looking forward to uh, trying to bring the Union back together. And of course, about a month later, Appomattox happened and the war ended. And then of course we know that that within a week, Lincoln was uh, shot at at Ford's Theater, died the next day. And an interesting point, you know, that, that the train ride and everything in the morning that was associated with it, and there was one person who stood out and said, "I would like to lead the funeral procession into the cemetery," and that was Joe Hooker, the general that Lincoln had written the letter to, and 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 basically been moved aside. And they asked Hooker, "Well, why?" And he said, "Well, that letter was such a letter as a father might write to his son." So he built this relationship with with Hooker, and. And even though he got removed, uh, he still felt greatly about Lincoln. And one of the things that I thought deeply about, and this is not in the book Lincoln on Leadership, uh, because I didn't think about it until afterwards, and that is that Lincoln was able to do something. It will be in the revised edition, I assure you, though. And, And Lincoln was able to do two things, combine two things that it's tough to do, is to the drive to achieve, which he had, and the capacity to care about people. Lincoln was always pushing. You know, he who achieves something at the head of one regiment and eclipses him who does nothing at the head of a hundred, and yet he would do nothing in malice. And in his second inaugural, when, you know, the, everybody knew what the outcome of the war was going to be, and in the very last paragraph of his second inaugural address, he he offered an olive branch to the South, and this is what he said. And it's one of the, it's a very moving because it's one of uh, the last public addresses Lincoln made to us. And he wrote it himself. And he said, "With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, for his widow." and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. And there it is, the, the very words, to achieve and to care. And I, when I went to the Lincoln Memorial, I was asked to speak in Washington about Lincoln and the founding fathers. And we went to the Lincoln Memorial, and this is after my books had come out, and a ranger's given a talk. And, and he says, now the sculptor, symbolized with Lincoln's hands the, the clenched fist, his determination to hold the union together, and his open hand, the compassion to let the South back in. And I thought, wow, that's really powerful. I don't know if it's true or not, <laughs> but it's a great story. <laughs> and what is it... I think I was asked... I can't remember who asked me today. If you had to sum... I think it was... I think it was you, Lee. And, and, and if you had to sum up leader, Lincoln's leadership in, in, or leadership in general in a, in a, in a minute, I came back to, to Lincoln's basic character. You know, he was sold as honest aid the rail splitter, but he really was that honest. And his foundation of leadership was character. He stood on that foundation, and everything he did was based on his character, his honesty, and his integrity. And he is the guy that said, you can fool some of the people all of the time, and all of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all of the people all of the time. And the more unknown part of that quote is what he said, if you once forfeit the confidence of your fellow citizens, you can never regain their respect and esteem. One time is all it takes, and that's it. That was, was Lincoln's basic basic character. And, of course, the Gettysburg Address, well, you know, you, you, you take a look at Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. It has taken its place among the great American documents uh, of our nation, uh, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights. People put it up there. And this was an address that lasted a couple of minutes, 10 sentences, and about 200 words. It was unbelievably eloquent. And Lincoln basically used the past, he said fourscore and seven years ago, which took us back to the revolution. And he took the past and he related it to the present. Today we are engaged in a great civil war. And then he used, he talked about renewal of the nation. He said that from these honored dead, remember he was at the cemetery, we take increased devotion to the cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. And he related that to the future so that government of the people, by the people, for the people would not perish from the earth. That's, By the way, that's the only picture of Lincoln at Gettysburg that we know of. But I come back to you now and I I look at the Lincoln Memorial as some 40 some odd years later. I'm going to tell you exactly how long it was, but I look at that and now I understand why they built the Lincoln Memorial. You know, in this temple, as in the hearts of the people for whom he saved the Union, the memory of Abraham Lincoln is enshrined forever. And I think of my my mother every time I look at that statue. And now I know it was because of her and that memory that this book came about. So I'm so honored, again, that you asked me to be here today. And I want to thank you for braving the elements and coming out to hear about one of my heroes, Abraham Lincoln. Thank you. Thank you. I think we have time for some questions, is that right? Can everybody hear me okay? I'm loaded up with all these microphones. You should be able to hear me. Go back. Okay. <laughs> so much for technology, right? Yes. You uh, made a point that uh, Lincoln was decisive, but you also made a counterpoint uh, that he was persuasive. How did those two uh, reconcile themselves? He always tried to persuade first. He, um, he he tried to make people understand what he was trying to do. And generally, he could build a consensus, and generally he could persuade. He he was amazing. There are a lot of stories about how people would go in to talk to Lincoln when he was president, and they were bound to determine that he wasn't going to turn him around, and he would. Um, So he, he, you know, and I I find this a common element in a lot of the leaders that I've studied, and one of the ones that comes to mind is is, um, uh, General Eisenhower. General Eisenhower of course, who later became president, never liked issuing orders. And he said, I never know if somebody's gonna really carry out an order or not, so I would prefer to persuade them. And he would talk, he was coaching a young, um, a young officer one time and he, he put a string, you know, this officer was issued a lot of orders and di- was, was getting a reputation as a dictator. And General Eisenhower put a string on the, on, the, on the desk, on the table, and he said, look, he said if you push the string from behind, it's just a jumbled mess, you know. It doesn't go anywhere until you get up to the front, and then. But if you pull it, the string goes nicely along. He said, "That's that's the way you should lead. You should pull people, and not push them." And that involves persuasion. It involves inspiration. It involves work. It's hard work to do that. A lot of people don't want to do it, but Lincoln did that, and he did it frequently. But he wasn't afraid to issue an order, and um, he would listen to everybody, and then he would make up his mind and make a decision, and. Uh, he, his decision-making process was real interesting. He, he was very deliberate. Very rarely made spot decisions right away. He would take all the, get all the facts, take them into account. He would review them. He would get consultation. He would vol- involve people, ask them for their opinions. Then he would ter- determine what is this consistent? Are these possibilities consistent with my objectives and my policy? And then he would make a decision. He would communicate that decision. It's a pretty basic process. And it's, and you know what, uh, Dr. King did the same thing, George Washington did the same thing. And what I was hearing today, Gerald Ford did something very similar. So it's a part of leadership, it's a part of the decision making process. I mean, are you going to try to persuade someone and once you do that, they'll go do it themselves and you don't have to worry about it anymore. Are you going to issue an order and worry that they may or may not do it? Lincoln issued very few direct presidential orders, very hard to find them actually. Yeah. Um, it can be made the um, case today that there's a certain amount of success of presidential candidate experience is due to how he does in a debate. How would you say Mr. Lincoln would have done in a presidential debate? Well, in about a month, you're going to find out with the Lincoln-Douglas debates, right? Um, and you read the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and it's pretty amazing what he said extemporaneously. I mean, he was brilliant. And um, um, I think, you know, it's hard to tell, you know, because everything's on television now, and you have to be real careful, and everything is, especially as in a presidential debate. Um, but, but Lincoln was, was a brilliant debater. He had a very quick mind. He was bright. He told lots of stories. He was colorful. You know, I think he was likable. I mean, people said back then that he, this guy has charisma, and uh, he was just a natural, likable type person. So I personally think he would have adapted quite well. Uh, he wasn't very good looking. By his own admission, yeah. Kramer, right? You know, and, um, but he used to—he took advantage. He, he would use that. He would, it was, his appearance was a joke. He would tell stories and make fun of himself. And some of the stories are hilarious. You know, it's, you don't want me to tell one? Yeah. No. I well, I'll tell you my favorite one. Is it? <laughs> Lincoln said, "You know, I was at a train station one time and." I went up to this guy with my shotgun and I pointed the shotgun at him and I said, prepare to die. And the guy says, what? Well, who are you? He said, I'm Abraham Lincoln. I said, my mother told me if I ever found anybody else that was uglier than I am, that I was to kill him on the spot. (laughs) And the man said, he said, Lincoln, if I'm uglier than you are, then blaze away. (laughs) And I don't think that answered your question, but it was a (laughs) nice story. This time is for you, by the way. You know, they've kind of built it in for you all to ask whatever comments or questions you might have. Well, much has been made in recent times about Lincoln's depression, his struggle with suffering, and how he was able to channel that suffering and his struggles into something much nobler than just self-indulgence or giving up. Comment on that? It's amazing to me that Lincoln actually suffered from depression at an early age and that he overcame it by the force of his own will. And uh, you can only imagine what he went through when he was uh, president of the United States. You know, not only the Civil War and the many boys he sent into battle and the amount of people that died. Uh, and His own son died uh, when he was president, his 11-year-old son um, it's just unbelievable, and I, I think that I think he had a very deep faith. A lot of people would question his faith, and and when actually Mary Todd was questioned, she said, "No, he's the most he's the most godly man I know," and I think faith had a lot to do with that. And I also think that his belief that he had to preserve the union propelled him forward. And um, it's it's an unbelievable story. Really, isn't it amazing that? A man like Lincoln could suffer from depression and still achieve what he achieved. It's a, it's a mystery to me. But it's to me, it's one of the most remarkable things about him. This lady had a question here. Who sculpted the statue? I can what's, what's his name? It was a French. I don't know. All right. So I'm 0 for 1 on the questions. (laughs) Uh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I knew that at one time. I just... Who? Daniel Chester Fresh. Okay, good. All right. I'm going to write that down, and I'll have it on the next time somebody asks me that question. Yes? Another question about health. What about this Marfan syndrome? You know... so many different doctors have looked at Lincoln. Mar- Marfan syndrome is is a um, it, it's a it's a, it's a symptom of a, of a heart condition. And excuse me. The oh, whole body, connective tissue. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm not I'm not a doctor, but I know that that a, a physician saw Lincoln's foot during it, when he was um, when he was had a picture taken, and his foot was was shaking. You know, was blurry, and so this physicians said, I think he had Marfan syndrome, which was whatever, which had to do with his heart and caused him, as I understand it, to be kind of gawky and long and thin. And uh, I don't know if it's true or not. Yes, sir? It's interesting to play the what if game, but what do you think, had he survived and not been assassinated, what would have happened? I think that... Um, I think, and I am not a trained historian, but I think most historians agree that it would have been much better for the South if Lincoln had survived and not been killed. I think that he had already made it known that he was uh, going to let him up easy. He rejected the Wade Davis bill, which would have required a 50% swearing to allegiance to allow a lot of state back in the Union. He said, no, that's too much. Let's make it 10%. And that became his. Uh, both of Allegiance of December the Eighth, eighteen sixty-three. Um, I think uh, Reconstruction would have gone a lot smoother. Uh, I think he had. A, I think a lot of people in the South in the Confederacy came to regard him more positively. Not everybody, of course, but um, I think it was a it was a tragedy for the Confederacy as well as as the Union it's for you know for that to happen. So, gentlemen behind. Me. This may be no more than trivia, but you mentioned the position of his hands on that, in that uh, statue. I was told by someone, you know, that the position of his left hand is an A in, in American Sign Language, hmm. and that, the way he has his right hand, is an L. The sculptor's actually got to make him his <laughs> I have never heard a ranger say that, but it's... <laughs> At Gallaudet University in Washington said that to me. So I don't know if there's anything in history about that, Bill, but uh, maybe a historian could tell you. But I actually don't know if the actual thing about the sculpture of the hands to symbolize was true or not either. I have not been able to verify either one of those things. i will come to you in a minute here. This gentleman back here. Uh, You said that Lincoln and uh, Andrew Johnson ran on the union ticket. Was that a popular thing to do politically? Were the party dynamics the same they were today? <laughs> I don't think so. I you know I think that that uh, the I think they went along with Lincoln because Lincoln was the guy. He had preserved the Union, and they were going to do about whatever he wanted. And look what happened when he was killed. You know what did they do to Andrew Johnson? They impeached him, and he one vote saved him from being thrown out of office. I think a lot of that had to do with the political <clears throat> nature of, of the appointment. And Lincoln wasn't around to save Andrew Johnson. So I think, I think that was a dramatic thing that Lincoln did. I, I didn't realize until I started studying. I, you know, did you ever think, I mean, really, I mean, that, didn't you think that Andrew Johnson was a Republican? That's what I thought, you know, until I, re, I, I learned about it. And I thought, wow, that's, that's remarkable. Yes? Oh, what if you like to do? Oh, yeah, he was a big reader. He was a huge reader. Shakespeare, the Bible. Um, his his quotes, his speeches are filled, you know, his early speeches, you know, uh, quotes from Scripture. He loved Shakespeare. He loved to go to the theater and, and watch Shakespearean plays. He said it was kind of a... Uh, he could quote Shakespeare amazingly. And, and um, so I think reading was a big thing for him. He also used to take trips up... To get out of the White House, he would go up to the Soldiers' Home about three or four miles away and uh, spend time up there reading and, and uh, meeting with people, just you know, getting out of the White House as much as he could. And uh, There are lots of stories about Lincoln. Uh, you know, He loved children and he liked to play with Tad, his younger son, and stories about younger friends bringing over their kids uh, at the Soldiers' Home or him going someplace where there were kids and he would, they would find him out running around with the kids in the field. You know, to kind of let off steam and stuff like that. So, gentlemen, back here. David Herbert Donald's book on Lincoln is one of my favorites. Is there any others that you, in terms of biographies? That was a magnificent book, wasn't it? Won the Pulitzer Prize, just tremendous. And um, I, I'll be showing my age a little bit here, but one of the ones I liked was Stephen B. Oates with "Malice Toward None," just a one volume, but I thought that was really. really good. And I my I first got my big interest in Lincoln by reading Sandberg's Lincoln, which I think is fantastic. It's you know and always always will be and it's it's a classic. But it's thick. I mean there's what how many volumes are those? Six volumes. Um, but those are the two that that I would recommend. Yes. What was his, foreign policy? Stay out of wars with foreign powers. <laughs> um, he, he pretty much, you know, I don't really know the answer to that question, so I don't want to even speculate. I mean, a historian could probably tell you a lot more about that of the period, but I got the impression that Lincoln was really focused on winning the Civil War. And um, there's a story that the Confederacy um, tried to enlist the aid of the British you know, to help them. And um, and then there, there's a story, I think, that one of, I think a couple of Confederate, a couple of English um, agents were captured on a Confederate vessel or something like that. Yeah, okay, so it, it did happen. And so Lincoln was presented with this problem. What is he going to do with these, these English commissioners? And... Um, they wanted, you know, there were people that wanted Lincoln to string them up, and you know, because it was a traitorous act and all this, and it was Christmas, and and Lincoln listened to this. This is a really great story. Lincoln said, "Well, what are you going to do about this?" And you know, and Lincoln said, well, "You know, this reminds me of the, those two bulldogs, you know, out out in a field, you know, and they're they're they would run across this fence all day long on both sides of this fence." Barking at each other and yapping at each other until finally one day they came to a hole in the fence big enough to let either one of them through. And what do you think they did? They turned tail and ran in the opposite direction as fast as so they could. He said, Now England and America are like those bulldogs. And he let him go. Yes, sir? Would you comment about the First Lady in the White House? <laughs> well, you know, Mary, Link, Mary Todd Lincoln gets. Uh, A lot of bad press these days, and 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 that started when, when Lincoln's law partner Herndon wrote this scathing book about Mary Todd Lincoln. They didn't get along at all, and a lot of what he wrote wasn't true, from what I understand. But Mary Lincoln had some problems. You know, she she uh, she was later committed to uh, an asylum by her her father, her son Robert Todd Lincoln. But she lost a four-year-old son, and then she lost Willie, a 11-year-old son in the White House. And um, she had some serious issues. And that's another thing that Lincoln had to deal with. Can you imagine? And he actually, one day, she was so distraught, she couldn't get over Willie's loss, that Lincoln actually took her over to a, a White House window and pointed to, what is it, St. Mary's or Bellevue? There was, a, there was a mental institution that was in view of the White House back then. And he said, look, if, if you don't, get your act together, that's where you're going to end up. And, and, um, you know, and then there's the stories about Lincoln getting these bills for all of these, you know, what he called flub dubs. He can get a bill for $25,000 for stuff in the White House. He said, you know what, my soldiers can't afford blankets and we're spending money on flub dubs? Uh, So, you know, it it was a tough, it was a tough thing, and, um, I'm really not qualified to tell you too much, but I, I'm more than not, I have sympathy for Mary Todd Lincoln and, 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 a, and a great appreciation for what Lincoln endured among his personal life as well as, as his, you know, his public life. Yes, sir? Could you give two or three You know, um, he had this innate ability, he just was a, wanted to learn. He, wanted to, he was, an innate, he was a, curious, and he was a natural learner, and he, he taught himself so much. And there was a period of time there where he kind of disappeared. And the story goes that, that he said, I'm going to prepare myself, and if my opportunity comes, I'll be ready. And he kind of took this time to educate himself on a lot of different things, and I think that preparation really helped him. Uh, and, and honed his ability. I also believe that the, um, the Lincoln-Douglas debates helped him tremendously for practice on speaking and to, to get really good at it. And, um, and, you know, if you read the Lincoln-Douglas debates, there's a lot in there that, that was extemporaneous, but there's a lot that he prepared for. And you, and you can almost tell, once you read it enough, you can tell what he took into those debates that was prepared and that he had memorized. I think that helped him tremendously. I also believe that him losing the Senate race, which was decided back then by the, um, what was it, State Senate, I guess. If it had been to the people, he would have been elected, I think. Wasn't the Illinois State Senate in the news today? (laughs) I haven't heard how that's turned out yet, but I'm going home to Illinois and I'll find out. I guess. Just I uh, hope that answers your questions. A few things that come to mind. One question: What Sorry. would then uh, Lincoln's role, leadership role, as a former president? Uh, it, it. <laughs> well, I don't know. If I had, if I was a future president, I certainly would be asking him questions and listening to what he had to say. You know, um, I mean, I, you know, uh, the, he he came to pull people. With him, He came to earn people's respect. And even the South respected him, Uh, many people in the South. So I think he would have been a great statesman. I don't know what he would have done afterwards. I have no idea. You know, he probably would have just gone back to Illinois practice law, be my guess, but I really don't know. It would be interesting to think about it, though, isn't it? Yes, sir? You mentioned Lincoln's deep faith. Who or what? Well, again, historians differ on this, and I, I think my personal belief and from everything that I've read was that his stepmother had a tremendous influence on him. His, his natural mother died when I think he was nine years old, and his father went off and left Abraham and his sister by themselves and came back with a new wife and her kids. And uh, the stories go that Sarah... Sarah Lincoln really liked Abraham and took a lot of time with him, and some say prefer- preferred him over even her own children. But that impact that she had on him, I think, was amazing and very, very strong. And I think it had a lot to do with with his eventual success and and his security. You know, the, the, uh, a man that boy that grows up to be a man who's not afraid afraid to appoint. Strong people around him. You know, I mean, that, that, that comes from something, and I think it comes from a, a very early age, uh, and it has to do, I think, with strong values in the home. Last question. Who wants to have the last question? <laughs> Sir. I believe that that was contained in the diary of Gideon Wells, who was the Secretary of the Navy, about, um, I'm not sure exactly. I think it was, it might have been the night before Lincoln was shot or some, just before Ford's theater. And uh, he came down to a cabinet meeting. It might have even been that that day when he came down to the cabinet and had this meeting and said that he had had this dream where he had, Awakened from a sleep and walked down. This is in his dream. He walked downstairs and and everything is really quiet and solemn. And and somebody said the president is dead or something like that. And apparently that's true. Um, that he had this this dream. And um, I don't know so much. I think. I don't know it was so much of a profound thing that was really going to happen, but, or, or Lincoln, you know, for a man who suffered from depression and had these types of things going through his head and was always worried about stuff, I can see that he was always worrying about stuff, and I can see him having a dream like that. And uh, He had other dreams earlier in his presidency, too, that most people don't know about, but that, that's the one that gets the biggest play, yeah.